We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome all who are with us here this morning in our gymnasium. Also, all joining us on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide, KFUO.org. Today we're going to be looking at the scripture lessons that are assigned for the Festival of the Reformation. Uh, this year with Reformation falling right in the middle of the week on a Wednesday. I think most churches are, that don't have a separate Reformation or All Saints service are probably making the same decision that we are, and that's that next Sunday, on the Sunday before Reformation, we'll be celebrating the Festival of the Reformation, and then the following Sunday, after the fact, uh, be celebrating uh, All Saints Day. So today, then, we'll be looking at those lessons that are assigned for the Festival of the Reformation. Let's begin with the word of prayer, then. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day ever thankful that it is by your grace, your undeserved love for us, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he did for us on the cross, that our sins are completely wiped away, and we have everlasting life. We thank you for your revelation of that truth to us, for the creation and sustaining of faith that you have given us in our baptism and continue to sustain throughout our lives, and that is that faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. Be with us this day and send your Holy Spirit to bless our study together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Before we get, you might say, into the weeds, the, the one thing we want to kind of keep in front of us is what's the main point when it comes to the Reformation? What's the main truth that stands as a, a clarion or a beacon when it comes to the Reformation? And it's, it's exactly what I just uh, said in the prayer, that we are saved simply by God's grace, his undeserved, unmerited love for us. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing we could do to deserve it, frankly. And it is strictly through faith in Jesus Christ. What Christ has done for us on the cross is credited by God to us as righteousness. Our own works, our own efforts avail us nothing, not a thing, when it comes to being declared righteous before God. We'll see this especially in the second lesson from Romans chapter 3. In fact, that's the, the one, one of the very key texts uh, when it comes to this truth. But as I say, before we get down into the scriptures themselves, that's going to be the theme that you will see uh, today, especially. I began with the collect for the day at the top of the page. And so you see today we'll look at the collect. We'll look at the first lesson, which notice is not from the Old Testament. It's Revelation, just two verses in Revelation. Uh, then there is that Romans text, which is the key text uh, in terms of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Then we have John 8, 31 to 36 assigned for this year. Jesus talking about knowing the truth and the truth setting you free. And then uh, if we have time, we'll look at Psalm 46, which is the, or at least a portion of Psalm 46, uh, which is the psalm assigned for the Reformation. No extra charge that we look at the psalm as well. All right, so Colic, let's take a look at that first. Uh, Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. And notice here, keep us steadfast in your grace, right? There we see that one of 
a beacon word for us. Keep us steadfast or strong in your grace and truth. Now, remember in the gospel lesson, Jesus is going to say, uh, if you abide my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get there. But the truth is that there is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then deliver us in times of temptation, and especially we think of a Reformation and the doctrine of times when we're tempted to turn to ourselves instead of to God for our forgiveness strictly by grace. Defend us against all enemies, including Satan, who would uh, like nothing more than to distort the gospel and, and cause us to turn away from the gospel and turn toward ourselves and our own efforts. And grant to your church your saving peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, and so on. Okay? All right. Let's take a look, first of all, at Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. So just two verses here. And I'll tell you a little interesting interpretation that was flying around at Luther's time. Uh, but let's read the, just the verses first of all, and then we'll get into it. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. All right. What I want to do is take this in context here in Revelation chapter 14. And what has come just before it in the first five verses of Revelation 14 is actually a vision uh, in which those who are delivered, and there's the 144,000 who are delivered, and they are standing in Mount Zion, and they are before the Lamb. Now, we've got to take a minute here to decode all of this. 144,000, does that mean that just 144,000 are going to be saved? Nobody else is going to be saved? No. I understand that that, that was a teaching, actually, uh, that the Jehovah's Witnesses held to at one time, and then when their membership got up to around 144,000, they thought they better, better change that. <laughs> it's not, it's not, not the best motivation for evangelism. Um, it means, we would say that, in the, again, the book of Revelation is written in a special, type of, is a special type of literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, like portions of Daniel in the Old Testament, for example, uh, are written using uh, images and symbols, like, for example, dragons and beasts. And the numbers also are used in a symbolic way most of the time. So the 144,000, we think of 144 is what number squared? 12 times 12. And the 12, we think, is the Old Testament church symbolized by the 12 tribes of Jerusalem. The 12 of the New Testament would be symbolized by the 12 disciples or apostles, okay? And then uh, the number 1,000 is actually 10 times 10 times 10, and the number of, of uh, 10 in apocalyptic literature is usually a number of completeness. So what we are thinking here, what, the way we interpret this, it's not just 144,000 are going to be saved. It's the entire Old Testament church, the entire New Testament church 
It's everybody that God calls according to his purpose, okay? And so the, the picture is they are there, the Old Testament, uh, saints from the Old Testament church, saints from the New Testament church are all there around the throne of God. And let me just read um, from verse 1 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion, again, is used typically to speak of that, that new Jerusalem, that, that heavenly home, stood the Lamb. Now, who is the Lamb who's standing there? Who would be the Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The ultimate sacrificial Lamb is he. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Well, we don't think again, they literally had it stamped on their foreheads. It's a way of saying that they were in his name. They were his followers. They believed in him, okay, and trusted in him. And then uh, if we look a little bit further down, uh, down to uh, verse 4, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. What does it mean in agriculture to be the first fruits? What are the first fruits in agriculture? Anybody know? The best? What about first? What does that mean? It's the first of the harvest, right? The first of the harvest that comes in. And in the Old Testament, the first of the harvest that was brought in was to be given to God. You didn't keep it. You didn't put it in your own store bins. You gave it to God. Why? It's a recognition that what? What you just took in out of the, out of the ground, where did that come from? God. Just like our sermon today, right? It all comes from God and is a gift to us. So the first fruits were given to God, and it was also a recognition that God is going to give you a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more out there in the field to be brought in yet, okay? So now let's think about who are the first fruits of the saints who are gathered around the throne of God here in Revelation 14. Those who were died first, right? And are there before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Some of them would include the martyrs who uh, are, have died and given up their faith or given up their lives, rather, uh, because of their faith. And, you know, there's, uh, I've had a number of people, and, and they, are, they are gathered there worshiping at the throne of God. I've had a number of people come up to me, and uh, more than one certainly say, that for them, one of the most meaningful parts of the worship service is right before uh, the Lord's Supper, where we join in in that preface, and say, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, you know, we down here on earth at the Lord's Supper, uh, we, we speak of it as a foretaste of the marriage feast and the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. And literally, we are uh, here in our imperfect way doing what the saints in heaven are doing and will do for eternity before the throne of God, right? And so we join with them in the same type of worship. And that's what we see going on here in Revelation chapter 14. So that comes right before our text. It's the triumphant picture of the saints in heaven. Then verse 6 
starts off, I saw another angel. Now, there are three angels that are mentioned coming on. We only get one here. And this angel, notice he is flying directly overhead. Actually, literally, it means mid-heaven. He's flying between the earth and the, the sky. And notice what he is doing. He has with him what? An eternal gospel. And he is proclaiming that eternal gospel. I will just tell you that, and we don't necessarily agree with this, in Luther's day, uh, can you guess who uh, some of Luther's friends were interpreting this angel to be? The one that's got, got there with the eternal gospel and is spreading it all over? Martin Luther, yeah. There were, there were some in his day, that contemporaries of his, that were interpreting that Luther is this angel. And uh, to that I will just say, we're not going to bet the farm uh, on that one, okay? It's a nice thought, and in a sense we can say, yes, Luther certainly did uh, proclaim the eternal gospel. But uh, I think that is uh, probably reading a bit much into the text to say that this has to be Luther. This is, a, this is a prediction of Martin Luther, okay? But nonetheless, whoever it is, notice there, it's, when it says eternal gospel, what kind of idea does that get across to you? It's, it's an eternal gospel. Something that's eternal doesn't have a what? An end, but also doesn't have a beginning. And we get from this that this has always been God's plan. That he would send his son to suffer and die in our place. It has always been God's plan. It was not that Jesus came to this earth and got caught off guard and, you know, didn't, didn't complete what he was going to do and, you know, kind of made it up as he went along. No, this is an eternal gospel that is proclaimed. And the good thing is, isn't it, that that gospel does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because the author of that gospel, that good news, does not change. You know, it, it wouldn't bring us much comfort at all to know if, if God were a capricious God who today said one thing, and then next week you'd have to wonder what? Is that still the case? But not the case with God. This is an eternal gospel that does not change. Okay? And uh, now, I'm not, I'm not identifying Luther with the angel here, but... We have to recognize that Luther, Luther did nothing more than bring back the eternal gospel, which had been, in some cases, um, what's the right word, uh, uh, adulterated or, or had been, had been uh, made impure, I guess you'd say, by all kinds of other things that we'll talk about a little bit more, especially during the Reformation era. Okay. But he proclaims this to all who dwell on the earth. Notice there, uh, there's no distinctions here. To those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So you get, the, you get the universal nature of the gospel. It is not for a particular group or party, but it is all-encompassing. Okay? And notice there, he, it goes on in verse 7. He said with a loud voice, and there are three things here. Fear God, notice there, that's first, give him glorious second, and then worship him. It comes right after that. Those three things are spoken. 
Fear God. Well, fearing God is both a couple things here. We do, and we should have, a healthy uh, fear of God in terms of his own power and might and awe. And for the sinner, should the sinner fear God in terms of his eternal, his or her eternal uh, standing? Absolutely. And that fear of God is a part of repentance. It leads to repentance, hopefully, when the law of God does its work on me. And it would be one thing if I would hear the word of, or hear the law of God condemning me of my sin and say something like, well, but God can't do anything about that. But no scripture says a God not only can, but he will. Even Jesus speaks of a lake of burning fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's that fear of God on the part of the sinner. Now let me ask you this. Do we still, as Christians, as those as baptized children of God, do we still fear God in the sense that we're afraid that he is going to get us? He's going to uh, just do us in. No, no. Uh, that, that fear has been removed, hasn't it, by the gospel and all the promises of God. But in what sense do we still perhaps have a fear a little bit, uh, not a little bit actually, uh, of God? A, a respect, a reverence, an awe, uh, in much the same way, I think, you know, for our parents as we're growing up, right? We have a fear, a reverence, a respect for them. We don't fear that they're going to harm us or they're going to uh, do us some physical harm. And there is still probably a little bit of the, the awe of God's power and might, too, isn't there? I mean, there's just that, uh, that sense that he is the, the all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful God of the universe, of all creation. So there's that fear in the sense of, you know, to stand in the presence of this mighty God. And the only way we can stand in his presence uh, today or on the last day is if we're clothed in the righteousness of his own son. And that's, again, what the Reformation was all about. It's nothing that I bring to the table to be able to stand before him. He gives me all that I need to stand before him. Okay, we have to keep that in mind. All right. So we, we fear him, we give him glory, and we know that God is glorified when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we would look at John 14, where Christ says pretty much the same thing, that, uh, and, and uh, even before going to the cross, uh, says, now is the time to glorify your name. And so uh, God, I, I have always said, God has no greater glory. You know, we, we usually think of the glory of God in terms of his power and his miracles and all that. But where does God have greater glory than on the cross? When he would humble himself in the person of Jesus Christ and willingly, voluntarily die for his people. God has no greater glory than in that weakness and making himself vulnerable and weak and actually dying for us, okay? So glorify God. And then finally, notice, worship him. Uh, word literally means to bow down before him. And, and he says, going back to creation, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And notice the hour of judgment has come, this messenger says. So let me ask you this. The uh, hour of judgment has come. Uh, good news or bad news? 
The hour of judgment has come. Good news or bad news? Is that a yes? <laughs> How is it, or to whom or for whom is it bad news? Unbelievers, those who have rejected uh, uh, Christ's call and God's gracious call to forgiveness. And Ashley, for whom is it good news? All believers in Jesus Christ, right? All whom he has called to his faith. You know, we can't imagine what that day is going to be like when all who have gone, when we are reunited with all who have gone before us, body and soul, now bodies no longer corrupted by, by sin in any, any way, shape, or form, the way God originally created Adam and Eve in the image of God. And, uh, you know, I was, I was teaching uh, the eighth grade confirmation class in school the other day, and I said, just think about that, that... We're going we're gonna to see Moses, we're going to see Elijah, Isaiah. I says, think of the questions you'd want to ask them, you know. And again, we just can't imagine what, what that's going to be like. Or the disciples, you know. Uh, it's just, it, it just is, we can't imagine what, what that is going to be like. And so it is, you know, the, the hour of judgment has come is both a bad news, you might say, this is an example of how the same news can be both law and gospel, right? For the unbeliever, it's law. And for the believer, we, we say, Maranatha, or come quickly, Lord, right? Yeah. All right. So that is the very short first lesson next week uh, in, in the Reformation, Festival of the Reformation. And I don't know, I really didn't find anything that it was chosen because this some in Luther's day thought this angel was Luther. They, they went be, there's actually a third angel also that some of his contemporaries thought had to be Luther also. So there's sort of a, a division of the house as to which one. And again, I don't want to I don't want to be up here uh, saying that we endorse that interpretation of this. I don't I don't think we can be that specific with this at all. But I think more this is chosen because again of the truth that it displays that. You know, turn to God, fear Him, uh, uh, give Him glory, and bow down and worship Him. And that's certainly uh, part and parcel with Jesus as our Savior by grace through faith. Okay? All right, uh, let me stop there for a second. Any uh, comments, questions, just on this Revelation text before we move on? All the two verses. Yes? What's going to happen to the people who are unbelievers? Well, Jesus makes this pretty clear in Matthew 25, that there'll be this great separation that'll take place between the sheep and the goats, you might say, as he puts it. Uh, the sheep being the believers, the goats being the unbelievers. And he will just say, depart from me. And again, he's, he's spoken in other places of into the, the lake of burning fire, which we would take as a, as a reference to hell itself. Uh, there's the other, the parable of the... the uh, gathering of the fish, and they bring the fish on shore, and they separate the, the good from the bad, and same thing there. So there's a great division on the last day. Believers, everlasting bliss in heaven. Unbelievers, everlasting torment in hell. Yes? Yes, I think uh, the, uh, the statement was that that would, that would mean that most of the people who have, have walked this earth would not be going to heaven, but going to hell. By, by statistics, especially today, the stats, at least the last that I saw, about a third of the people uh, on the face of the earth at this point 
are Christians. And I've always, you know, the, the, the comment will come back, well, how can God allow that, or how could God preside over that, or whatever uh, verb you want to use. Uh, you know, the response is that uh, God doesn't owe anybody salvation, does he? It is a wonder, it is a miracle of God that anybody is saved. We tend to think of salvation, I think, sometimes as something that we are entitled to, something that we deserve, simply like a birthright. That's not the case. We are conceived and born enemies of God, and the fact that God would work graciously to save anyone, and even to the extent of delivering up his own son, uh, would be, is, is the miracle. Okay, one more. Yeah, question comes back about the love of God. And he creates all these people, and the majority end up not going to heaven. And again, the response is, as Jesus said, greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. And we would say that uh, the, the alternative would have been, obviously, God makes nothing, and God creates nothing. But God did create. He didn't force them into sin. And now you could, you could argue, well, then why did he even allow the tree in the garden? Uh, you know, I, I can't answer that. I don't know of anybody that can. Uh, that's one of the questions we'll ask. But again, the, the miracle is that this God would love us in spite of our rejection of him and would do all that he did as a result of that love, delivering up his own son for us. And the miracle is that anyone would be saved. God could just as easily have turned his back on us. In fact, you know, if you read Genesis uh, 8, right before the flood, it's kind of scary. God says there, it says there that God even regretted that he had made man right before the flood. And, you know, and then there's, there are numerous spots in the Old Testament where Moses has to intercede for the people of God. Because God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over. And Moses intercedes. So, in a way, is pointing ahead to the ultimate intercessor, Christ, who comes. Okay? All right, we're getting kind of, uh, we better move on. Let's go to the, the main lesson now for next week, which is the Romans 3 lesson. And this is the one that's up every uh, Reformation, every festival of the Reformation. And uh, we probably don't have time to go through this, uh, read it all through first. Let's just start off taking it verse by verse. Paul starts out here, now we know, and... You know, Paul is a very skilled uh, writer and very good with rhetoric. Now we know. So what's he doing here? He's, he's assuming, he's trying to get us all on board. Now we know this, right? And frankly, some of the people he's writing to would not agree. But he's kind of, now we know that. So he goes on. Now we know that whatever the law says... And law is used six times in verses 19 through 21. So he is really going to be hammering at this here. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So those who are within the sphere of the law, whatever the law says, it says to those guys who are within the sphere of the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. It's kind of like putting a sock in it, you know? Every mouth may be stopped. In other words, you can't 
it's going to end up, we'll end up seeing. You cannot say anything on the basis of the law when it comes to your salvation, except that you're a sinner. That's all you can say. It's like a, put a sock in it, you know, if you're, try, if you're trying to argue by the, by the law. And, uh, you know, you, you, we can't say a thing, okay? Um, and notice here, the whole world may be held accountable to God. So is anyone left off in terms of being accountable before God? The whole world is accountable. And that word accountable there is actually a legal term. It's being held accountable like you're, like you're being held accountable in a court of law for something that you did. Okay? So there is no, there is no getting a pass. There's no getting a buy. Uh, everyone, the whole world, is held accountable to God. Why? Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Boy, there's a lot in that one verse. By works of the law. Paul uses that phrase, works of the law, and it means any type of human activity or human endeavor directed toward God. Okay? So the arrow is from us up to God. Any human activity or endeavor uh, by us in relation to God. Okay? And he says, by that, by the, that human endeavor on our part toward God, notice there, no human being will be justified and that word justified is a legal term also. It means to be declared righteous or to be declared not guilty, to be declared innocent before God. And so notice here that by works of the law, by human activity directed toward God, nobody, no one will be declared righteous or will be justified. So that is about as categorical a statement as you can possibly make. And then he goes on, since or because, what is the chief purpose of the law that Paul says in this next little phrase? Through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. And we call that what use of the law? The second use where the law acts as a mirror, right? Showing us our sin. When I look into the Word of God, and specifically into His law, I might think something's just fine, or I might think it's so-so, but God says, no, that is sin. Or God's uh, law tells us what we must do, and I may fail to do that, right? That's the chief purpose of the law, is to point out our sin to us and point out our need for a Savior. See, I may not realize that unless I have the law of God directed toward me. And so in that sense, the law works together with the gospel in a perfectly seamless way. The law, again, points out my sin and points out that I need a Savior. The gospel, of course, is the good news of my Savior. And I've said this before, this is what separates Christianity from all other major world religions. All other major world religions, when you get right down to it, they've all got their different ways of doing it, but it's always the direction is from us to God. It's human activity 
uh, directed toward God. Christianity is the only one where the flow is in the exact opposite way. It's what God has done for us that makes the difference, not what we have done for God. And that separates Christianity from all other major uh, religions. Okay? And it's exactly what Paul is saying right here, that by works of the law or human activity directed toward God, no one will be declared righteous or will be justified. You cannot make a more categorical statement than that. It's universal truth. Okay? So going on, uh, now to verse 21. But now, now when you hear the word but in a sentence and it's been going on and it's all been negative, what do you think is going to happen now? Positive stuff is coming, but now, Paul says. That's an important word, but now, the righteousness of God. Now, I want to just say that when we read through this, and I'll try to point this out, the righteousness of God is used in two ways as we go through these verses. The righteousness of God, first of all, is sometimes used as the righteousness that God has, a characteristic or a quality of God, and we would say, yes, he is totally righteous but it's also used as the righteousness that comes from God and is given to us, okay? And that was the great discovery that Luther made, that the righteousness that comes from God is given to us by faith, okay? But first of all, here in verse 21, but now the righteousness that comes from God, this is the, the one that he gives to us. He, it, he is the source of this righteousness, has been manifested or revealed or made known apart from the law. In other words, when I want to be righteous before God, i got to look someplace other than the law, and God has made it known apart from the law or separate from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I'm going to stop there for a second. What Paul is saying here is that this righteousness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ was even witnessed and testified to by the law and the prophets. And you know, I began thinking about this, and remember in Genesis, all the way back, we could go back to Genesis 15, verse 6, to a guy named Abraham. And it's written there that Abraham believed God, faith, and it was counted or credited him as righteousness all the way back to Abraham. And all the way through the Old Testament, God is inviting his people to worship him, not just with their lips, but with their hearts as well. That's always been God's desire, always been his plan. It's through faith and trust in God, in this case, Jesus Christ. So the, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, they testify to this same thing. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You know, again, it's through. The, the faith is the, the uh, agent or the means uh, that this righteousness is given to us. Okay? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. In other words, there's no uh, difference made here whatsoever. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's, a, again, a categorical statement, isn't it? There's no getting around that. There's no saying, 
well, I may be kind of, kind of bad, but I'm not as bad as somebody else. No, all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory of God. In other words, if, if you're on, a, on a one side here of, of a cliff, and you've got another cliff over here, and you've got to jump to it, if you're trying to do it on your own, what's going to happen? You're going to fall short. You can't do it. Everybody, everybody's in the same boat. You're not going to make it to the other side on your own, by yourself. Okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Bad news. Bad news. But, going on now. Okay? Um, and, are, uh, and finally now, are justified or are declared righteous by his grace. There again is that word grace. It's that undeserved unmerited love of God for us. That's how we are declared righteous before God. And notice there, as a gift. So what are we to conclude about the fact that it's a gift? Pastor Thompson referenced this a little bit in his sermon this morning, based on a discussion he had with our eighth graders. But when I get a gift, it, done in the, in the perfect uh, sense of this gift now. I know sometimes we give gifts and we may have other motives in mind by giving a gift to somebody, uh, maybe even self-serving uh, times, but in the perfect altruistic sense now, if we're giving a gift, what can we say about that? Did the per are we giving it to the person because they deserved something or earned something? No. We're not expecting anything back. We simply give it to them. It's not based on anything they did or didn't do. It's simply given. No strings attached, right? And that's the same with our salvation. It is given, notice there, by the grace of God as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what is redemption? When I redeem something, what do I do? I, I might go to a redemption. We don't know if we have redemption centers anymore. Uh, we, we used to. But uh, re if I redeem something, what do I do? Get it back or buy it back. Purchase it back, right? I buy it back. So we have been bought back, you might say, with a price. And that price, of course, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not with gold or silver, but with his innocent suffering and death, his holy, precious blood. Um, and now here comes another big word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Well, let me just take a second here. We've <laughs> got some big words in here. Propitiation means uh, you could substitute the word atonement for this. And this word propitiation, in, in going back to the Old Testament, remember the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament had on the top of it a mercy seat. Okay? And that was the spot where every year the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go and sprinkle blood on this mercy seat. And that was done for the sins of all the people on the Day of Atonement, or the Yom Kippur. Okay? And what is being said here is that Paul is saying that Christ is our mercy seat. He is the place. And it's, it, there's no other blood sprinkled on him. It's his own blood that is burning us forgiveness here. So just another way of saying this so that especially those who are familiar with that in the Old Testament would understand it. And notice there, to be received by uh, faith. And uh, then this next one it might seem rather strange to us. This was to show God's righteousness. Now here, when it says God's righteousness, 
This is not the righteousness given to us. This is the one that's a quality of his right here, okay? This is the use of the phrase in terms of God being righteous. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it's not that God said in former times, oh, that's not important anymore, or I, I may have said that, but I didn't really mean that. Passing over former sins, we take to mean that he did not yet punish those sins until Christ came. And at that time, Christ was punished for them, not the sinner. Okay? So it's another way of saying, look at how righteous God is. He even passed over, or you might say held off the punishment for, all these sins that were committed before Christ walked this earth and allowed Christ, his own son, to bear the brunt of that punishment. And that's, again, it's showing how righteous God is, okay? It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time, again, that's God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just or righteous and the justifier, the one who has, of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's kind of a play on words there that this God who put off punishing sin until Christ came and took the punishment is both just, he's righteous, and he's also the one who makes righteous, the one who justifies. Okay, he's, he's one and the same. So you get both uses of that word right there. Okay, then finally, finishing up, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, earlier on in, two, in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Paul references the Jews who were boasting of their keeping of the law. And we think this is probably a circling back to that. What becomes of our boasting, you know, in keeping the law, that we've kept the law so well? It is excluded, Paul says. It's shut out. And we could say, actually, by God it is shut out because of what God did for us in Christ. By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith or the rule of faith. For, and this is the key verse right here. We hold or we conclude that one is justified or is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Notice there being declared righteous or being declared uh, innocent. Are we active or passive in that? We are passive. It's nothing we do. God simply declares it to be so, and it is so. Just as certainly as he said, let there be light, and there was light, so he also declares us righteous, and it is. It simply is. Okay? Now, uh, just real quickly, there in Luther's day, of course, uh, it was, well, actually it was earlier on in Romans, Romans 1, 16, uh, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith, that sent the light bulbs off in Luther's, uh, and he understood that, again, that the righteousness of God is not, is not only a quality that God has, but something that God gives to us by faith. That the, the one who by faith is righteous shall live is another way of translating uh, what we just read. And in Luther's day, of course, there was great abuse uh, of this, of this truth, that, again, people were offered um, ways to help themselves and help their loved ones uh, 
the teaching of purgatory, for example, is something that uh, we, again, would vehemently uh, reject. But again, purgatory being a stopping off place for Christians now, not for non-Christians, but for Christians, Catholics would teach, on the way to heaven to be purged or purified of any remaining guilt or sin. And, of course, it got to be um, a, a real... <laughs> Disgusting thing, and what really set Luther off was the sale of indulgences, which were pieces of paper signed by the Pope that were supposed to give you years and years, and in some cases thousands of years, out of purgatory. You could transfer those to uh, your parents, your relatives, uh, and at the height of it, uh, a guy named uh, Johann Tetzel was the... Uh, the, the most well-renowned salesperson of indulgences came into Luther's territory, and the famous expression that he had was, as the coin in the coffer clings, clings, the soul from purgatory springs. So as you put the money in, it clings in the chest, the soul from purgatory springs. And people began trusting in these pieces of paper that they had purchased uh, over and above Christ, and even started buying them ahead of time for sins that they thought they might commit in the future. And so it was indulgences, it was paying money to have a mass said, spoken by a priest, whether there was anybody there or not, just going through the motions and speaking the mass, again, was thought to be a good work, pleasing in the sight of God, and transferable for years out of purgatory, uh, and so on. And the list could go on and on. And my purpose here is not to uh, uh, you know, be running down the Catholic Church, I think we too have to be careful in our own lives, don't we? That there are times where we are tempted to think that I'm just a little bit more deserving of this from God than somebody else, right? We always want to circle around, and, and there is, it, it's a part of the old Adam, I think, in still, that we still carry around, that we want to be able to say that maybe just in a little bit, I was able to help out here, right? We're too proud sometimes to just receive something freely, the way God gives it, you know? Uh, and I don't know if, if it's any worse in America because of our American work ethic or not, but it just seems sometimes like it's so hard to swallow that, isn't it? That I want to do something. Well, the nice thing is, after you receive all this gift, there's plenty you can still do, you know? Not in order to get it, you've already got it. But in response to what God's given you, there's still plenty out there for you to do, and you can feel good about that. But, you know, in terms of trying to do something that's going to make me right before God, there's always that temptation that we have, you know? Uh, the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus, remember, and what's his question? What must I do to be saved, right? And, uh, and that whole Jesus leads him along that process to see that, unfortunately, his, his wealth and his riches meant more uh, than following Jesus. So there's always that temptation. We want to do something to make ourselves right. And the, the unfortunate thing is we cannot do anything. No matter how hard we try, we can't do anything. But that good news is God has done it all for us. There's nothing left for us to do to make ourselves right with God. We, he declares us righteous that's it. It's over. All right, let me stop here for a minute. Any comments, questions, statements? All right, let's go on. We'll finish the gospel, uh, gospel lesson. 
is relatively short. John 8, 31 to 36, and notice here the emphasis upon truth. And we would say again, that's a reference, well, first of all, it's a reference to Christ as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Also a reference to the gospel that is embodied by Christ, that, that he is the way to forgiveness and everlasting life. Uh, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and there's a, I won't go into the detail here, but it seems like some of the Jews at this time were following him, but it wasn't a real heartfelt conviction. Uh, they, they, they were still kind of outside of saving faith, but were starting to follow him. Notice, if, if you abide or, or continue or remain in my word, and that word would be his whole teaching, everything he's teaching, right? If you abide in my word, you are truly, not will be, but are truly my disciples. And a disciple being a student or being a follower. And so it's only logical. If you're a follower or a student of Jesus, you abide or you remain in his word. You live in that word. And notice, and the result, you will know the truth... And again, we would say that is synonymous with Christ and the gospel. And the truth will set you free. Well, what, what does the gospel, what does this truth set us free from, would we say? Set us free from what, Jesus? What do you think? Sin? Death? Right? And that's going to be coming up. Jesus will say just that. Now watch, watch what the, uh, the Pharisees, uh, the Jews do here. Uh, verse 33, they answered him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, what are, they, what are they relying on there? They are descendants of Abraham. They are descendants of the promise. We've never been a slave to anyone. Well, wait a minute. Uh, not so sure about that. There was that little 400-year uh, period there in Egypt. And uh, the Romans are currently ruling over you. There was that uh, 80 or so years in Babylon, you know. So they're kind of, uh, you might say, selectively forgetting a few things here, I might add. But uh, they, they thought of themselves, let's put it that way, they thought of themselves as free. But Jesus is going to point out, you're not free at all. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, who practices sin, notice present tense, who practices sin, is a slave to sin. Now, how is it that someone who practices sin, and we're, we're assuming, I guess, here, unrepentant, uh, not faith in Christ, sin, how is it that they are a slave to sin? How would we say they are a slave to sin? Any answers? Bondage to the results of sin, okay? And if you're a slave to something, or someone, you're owned by it, aren't you? It owns you. And you cannot set yourself free in a true sense of slavery. It determines what you do, when you do it, how you do it. And that's your identity. You're a slave to it, okay? Anyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now he makes a distinction here. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And he's drawing up a distinction between the household servant, 
who could be sold at any day to someone else. So the, the slave or the servant in the house doesn't remain there forever. The son does. In fact, even if the son moves away somewhere, he is still an heir and still remains, in a sense, in the household. So he's drawing a distinction here. Okay? And so he goes on to say, um, verse 36, So if the Son, Jesus now, sets you free, namely from sin, from death, you will be free indeed. Okay? So he's drawing a distinction there that through him, the Son, comes true freedom from sin. And that's, again, the heart of the Reformation message. That freedom from sin comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only Christ who can set us free. Okay? All right, that was a quick, for time purposes, quick uh, romp through uh, the gospel lesson. Any uh, comments, questions on John 8? All right, I want to show you one thing. Oh, I'm sorry, way in the back, Jan. All right. Yeah, uh, so the question was about going on a little bit further than our text itself. So if we uh, go down to verses 30, uh, 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So he's acknowledging that. They, they certainly are the descendants of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because of my, my word finds no place in you. So it does not abide in them. That word that he says, if you abide in you, you'll be free. He's saying it does not abide in you. And that's, that's the real problem. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Okay? So notice there, and I don't know if your translation is capitalized for first father and not for second father, but that's exactly the point. Jesus is saying, I'm an eyewitness to this. I've seen it directly from the father. You do what you heard from your earthly father. Okay? Going back all the way back to Abraham. Okay? So big difference. Jesus speaks from the Divine Father. They're just speaking about customs and traditions from their earthly father. Okay? All right. Quickly, just real quickly, uh, we're not going to be able to get into Psalm 46 very much. I just wanted to tell you that um, um, I think when we sing, and this is our hymn of the month here at uh, St. Paul's, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a, obviously a very appropriate uh, hymn of the month. Um, I think most of us, when we sing that, we kind of think of it as the rah-rah, sis-boom-bah uh, hymn of the Reformation, right? We even stand up when we sing it, and boy, we're going we're gonna to belt it out. And, and it, I agree, it, it does have that, that uh, sense to us. But actually, uh, from what we know, it was written, we think, in about 1527. At a time in Luther's life, there was about at least a year in his life where there was tremendous uh, stress and sorrow uh, in his life. And I just want to read you just a little bit of, uh, on this. He says, in, in August of 1527, a man who followed Luther's teaching was martyred. So a friend was, was killed because he was following the teaching of Luther. In the fall of 1527, a plague broke out in Wittenberg. And people were dying right and left. There was death all over. And it, it, it really strongly impacted Luther. In December of 1527, Luther wrote to a colleague, We are all in good health except for Luther himself, who is physically well, but outward the whole world. 
and inwardly the devil and all his angels are making him suffer. A few days later, in January 1528, Luther wrote that he was undergoing a period of temptation or testing that was the worst he had experienced in his life. When Luther speaks of temptation, he uses the German word anfekton. And anfektus, translated temptation or trial, refers to anything that causes anxiety, doubt, fear, suffering, or terror in a person's life. Uh, in December of 1527, Luther's daughter, Elizabeth, was born sickly. In May of 1528, she died. The six months of wrestling with Lord in prayer to save his sick daughter was a period of temptation or anfekton for Luther. He was mentally and spiritually fatigued. He was under the cross of suffering, yet he took comfort in the Psalms and trusted in the promises of Jesus. And so a mighty fortress is our God is a, you might say, a paraphrase of Psalm 46 that I've got on your sheet there. And it was not written to be a, a hymn of combat against uh, uh, Romans, uh, Roman Catholics. It was written to say that in the midst of everything that was going on in Luther's life, including the death of his own daughter, that God is a mighty fortress, right? A trusty shield and weapon. And take they our goods, fame, child, and life, right? Let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. Okay? So maybe that'll give you, I wanted to just get into that a little bit. Maybe that'll give you a different context when you sing that hymn. Uh, we'll certainly be singing it next Sunday as well if you've already been to 8 o'clock uh, service today. But it's a different, I think it has a different feel to it when you, when you kind of understand what was behind uh, the writing of that hymn. Okay? All right. Let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.